That being said, let's open up our Bibles to Genesis 49, and we will look at uh, Jacob's uh, dying words, his last words to his sons, his final words. And if you think about it, um, the things that echo in our minds, and maybe in yours and maybe not, are, are the last words that someone will speak to us. Now, it could be the last conversation you had with somebody, or it could be literally the last words they ever said to you. They stay with you for a long time. And so that's why I wanted to camp out in chapter 49 a little bit this week. Now, if you remember, Michael Sylvie was here last week, and he did a wonderful job on Father's Day kind of communicating the heart of a father, but also seeing Jacob's heart, not only for his sons, which he's getting ready to bless, but last week we looked at how he blessed his grandsons. And you'll remember that in verse 5 of chapter 48, not only did he bless his grandsons, but he told his son Joseph, uh, these grandsons of mine, I'm actually going to claim them as my sons. I'm going to take them on as my descendants. And so he claimed his grandsons as his own sons. And then he bestowed the firstborn blessing instead of on the older, the firstborn He actually did what has happened many times in the family of Abraham. He actually blessed the younger instead of the older with the double portion, uh, the rights of the firstborn. And then in verse 15 through 16, he actually blesses Joseph with a double portion, which is important because um, he's not the oldest, and he was actually the despised among all of his brothers. His brothers hated him. Uh, So much so, if you remember, they actually sold him into slavery, which I've gone through bouts in my life where I've hated my brother, but I've never once thought, hey, I should sell him. Uh, but if you remember, their first plan was actually not, not to sell him into slavery, but uh, let's kill him. So, I mean, I don't know where you are with your siblings, but perhaps if you get in the comparison battle, you could say, well, I'm not as bad as they were. Um, but Jesus said murder begins in the heart, so start there. Um, but that said, he then goes on to bless his grandsons Ephraim and Manasseh. And then in verse 22, he gives Joseph an inheritance in the land that God promised to Abraham and to Isaac, and eventually Jacob partakes in that same promise. So he's passing on the inheritance, the physical blessing of property in the land uh, to his son Joseph. And it seems that this, this land that he gives to Joseph was actually land that he had actually fought for with a sword, which is interesting because Jacob was actually known for being someone who dwelled in tents and was a homemaker with his mom. He was a mama's boy. So the one land he actually fought for, he gives that to his son Joseph. So Jacob's final word begins in chapter 49, verse 1. And the purpose of this final word is, is mentioned in verse 1. It says there, Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Have you ever wanted to know, what does my future hold? Here, Jacob says, I'm going to tell you your future. And he's, he's going to tell him the future based on a word from the Lord. This isn't just Jacob speaking into the life of his sons. It's actually him being inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak things that only the Lord of heaven and earth, the God who is outside of time, that's seen the end from the beginning, Only God can know the things that Jacob's going to utter to them. But these are important words. And what's interesting is many times we're looking for God to speak to us concerning the things that will happen in our futures. And I want to encourage you, he is able to do that. He might speak to you through your pastor. He might speak to you through a family member. He might speak to you even through an unbeliever. The things that only the Lord could know the question is, do we have ears to hear what he would have to say to us? In Second Timothy in chapter 3, an often quoted verse, uh, Paul writes uh, to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he says this. He says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, uh, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. The Bible doesn't spend a whole lot of time telling us what not to do. Uh, God's purpose in telling us anything is to instruct us in righteousness, 
to, to be innocent concerning the things of evil and be uh, wise in the things concerning good, to be understanding. That the man of God, verse 17, may be complete, whole, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so that's what God's word is for. But in our passage today, what we see is that before Paul wrote that, many centuries earlier, Jacob was speaking and he was inspired by, or the phrase there in 2 Timothy 3.16 means God breathed. God is breathing words through Jacob, which if you know Jacob's story and you've been with us throughout the the history of Genesis, uh, God can speak through anybody. Because Jacob was not known for being a righteous man, he was known for being a schemer, uh, a supplanter, a not a great guy, a, a, a failure, actually. And the Bible's not, it doesn't back up from saying that. It's actually very bold in saying that Jacob was not a great guy. He was a sinner. And yet, by God's grace, he's changed, and God's preparing him with words of wisdom for his son. And that encourages me. Because as the words that come out of my mouth will affect my children, so also for you. And maybe they're not your physical children, but people you have influence in their lives. God's giving you words, and words do matter, to speak blessing and warning and correction and accountability and words of life. James said that the power of life and death is in the tongue. And we will be accountable for the words that we say. Why? Because they're like a match. They have potential to either set on fire for uh, purification or to burn down for uh, destruction. And so God's always telling us, be careful what you use your words for. But in a New Testament example of, he says, he says, I'm going to get you together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Which made me think of a passage in Acts chapter 20 where the apostle Paul, again, is investing in the New Testament church and at the end of what he believes is going to be his ministry, he speaks to the Ephesian elders at an island called Miletus, or a city called Miletus. I can't remember if it's an island. Acts chapter 20 and verse 17 says that Paul uh, from Miletus sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. He's saying what Jacob's saying in our passage today. Gather together so that I can speak to you. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day what I came to, when I came to Asia, in what manner I have always lived among you. And no doubt, no doubt Jacob knew about that his sons knew how he had composed or carried himself among them. But Paul says, I was serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews." How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but I proclaimed it to you, and I taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and to Greeks. In other words, without partiality, I spoke to all that would listen. And what he testified was repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, See now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. I don't know if I'm going to get to come back and speak to you again. I think this might be the last time I get to talk to you. He says, I do know that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I've, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, because I know my time is short, this is what I have to say to you. I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned, or I have not avoided teaching to you the entire of scripture i've not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of god now in paul's day that he didn't have, he wrote a good portion of the new testament so i believe that he believed in the inherency of scripture and so he taught all of it knowing that it was inspired by god and it was able to teach us what we need to live in godliness so he declared the whole counsel of god 
Therefore, take heed to yourselves, to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, shepherd the church of God. And here's the reason, because it's worth it. God's church is worth quite the pretty penny. How much did God pay for the church? All of his own blood. So therefore, shepherd the church. He purchased it with his own blood. It meant everything to Jesus. So I want you to invest in it. I want you to sacrifice for its benefit. And then he warns them, verse 29. I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. False teachers. Also from among yourselves. So those false teachers from without, but then he says, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things. People from inside the church will pervert the truth of God to draw away disciples after themselves instead of following Jesus. He says, therefore, watch and remember that for three years I have not ceased to warn you, to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God. He says, here's all the things that I've done. Here's what matters. And now I give you to the Lord and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That's what Jacob's doing in today's passage. He's commending them to God. He's reminding them of the warnings. But then he's also saying, I commend you to the word of his grace. I'm leaving words of grace with you so that you be built up and you will be able to obtain the inheritance. Now, for Paul, he's writing to a group that's not looking for a physical inheritance. Our hope is in heaven. We're not of this world. But Jacob is writing to his brother, speaking to his sons, and he's saying, I want you to obtain everything God has for you. And for them, it was a physical inheritance. He said, so I'm going to leave you words of grace so that you won't miss out on what God has given you as an inheritance. And so one more place I want to point out in the New Testament where people are gathered together and spoken to words of grace so they may have obtained what Jesus has for them is the Apostle John. He was given a vision on the island of Patmos and he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write letters to the churches. It's letters to the church corporately. But in chapter 2 through 3, he writes letters to all these different churches there in Asia Minor. When he writes those letters, he writes each letter, and each letter can, has in it these elements. They reveal something about Jesus Christ. He says, you need to look at Jesus, and this needs to be your standard. This is your hope. This is your calling. This is your goal. And then he commends the positive things going on in each church. Now, some of them didn't have any. He commends them for the things that are going on that are every good work. But then he also, by the way, criticizes those things that are sinful within the churches. God calls us to account, and many times he speaks things to us that we're not ready to hear because he loves us. God does, in fact, warn and criticize us. As believers, we need to become a lot more teachable. The world may not be teachable. They're not going to be. They're dead in their sins and trespasses. But we as believers need to be able to grow in being willing to be corrected. And I'm preaching this to myself. That's why I'm doing this. Us. If you're not able to receive constructive criticism... You better check yourself before you wreck yourself because God has called us to be discipled by him. And many times Jesus spoke words of grace that we would call overly critical or mean. But he did them because he loves us and he's trying to call us away from things that can hurt us. There are things in your lives that God's trying to weed out because they are cancer. They're more dangerous than cancer because your body, though it may be destroyed by cancer, your soul will be destroyed by cancer eternally. Cancer is sin. So if somebody calls you out on something and it's biblically, they, they need to do it, might be even myself. Notice that it's, it's for love's sake. It's for healing's sake. 
They, they want to help you. So Jesus criticized any present sin, and then he counseled each church as necessary for the, their eternal benefit and health. And so that's what Jacob's doing. Jacob's going to criticize some things in his sons. He's going to call them out for things that they probably thought they got away with years ago. He's going to commend them and the things that they're doing well. And he's going to tell them something about their future. And so, verse 2, there we are. (laughs) He says, gather together and hear. Now, he's already said gather. He said, gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. And then he says, gather together and hear you sons of Jacob. Now, wait a minute. He's then going to go on and say, and listen to Israel, your father. He's using both of his own names. Uh, One from his past, Jacob, heel catcher, supplanter. He's saying, hey, sons of Jacob, gather together and listen. You're my sons. And I'm ashamed of my past, but it is my past. You carry the same DNA as I do. You're sons of Jacob. You got this fleshly nature inside of you. So, Listen, because you really need to. You're going to struggle with the same things I did. It's always important to remember where we came from. It's always important to to tell our children where we came from so we can warn them. These are the things you're going to have a, a struggle with. So he says, sons, battle against the Jacob within you. I've passed on some good things, but there's a lot of bad fleshly stuff that you're going to inherit just because of your DNA. I'm going to warn you, fight against it. Don't give yourself over to the the leading of your flesh. But then he goes on in the same verse and he says, listen to Israel, your father. I'm not Jacob anymore. Listen to Israel. Israel means governed by God. I am a new creation in Christ. Behold, all things have gone away and all things have become new the old things have gone the new thing has come and so god has made me new listen to me as one that god has made not to who i used to be you know can you imagine some of his sons telling stories about well when dad when we were younger dad used to do this this and this and so it'd be very dangerous for them to go oh well dad used to do it and he's all right now so i can dabble in that I'm not going to be susceptible to that. But but in the same token, he's saying, sons, you too. You have to personally be made new. By God's grace, if you can become as I now am, governed by God, but you need to listen to what I have to say. It's a big if. If you will heed my words, your, my words will be life to you. And so verse 3, um, before we get there, there are two elements to prophecy. Many times we think about prophecy in Scripture. We think about foretelling, something that you find out ahead of time so that you'll know it's going to come to pass later. God, all throughout Scripture, is telling his people, those who will listen, here's the things that are going to come to pass. Many times, by the way, he tells us things for the benefit of others' future. You think about the prophet Jonah. God spoke to Jonah and he said, I want you to go to the Ninevites. Of course, he didn't want to go. He was kind of reluctant. Uh, a little bit. He went the opposite direction. But he was told by God, I'm going to judge these people. Go tell them. And so Jonah, there's a whole famous story where he goes the opposite direction. But when Jonah's finally corrected, he goes to the Ninevites, he warns them, yet in 40 days, and God's going to bring down his wrath upon you. He did it for the benefit of them. Now, was it a false prophecy? Because God didn't end up judging them. If you you know the end of the story, he didn't judge them. Why? Because God's word is, is, it's, it's useful for correction. And so because his word was spoken finally, obediently to this people, they were warned and they heeded the warning and they repented and God did not judge them. So it was a true prophecy if they didn't repent. And so in the same token, God oftentimes speaks to people to warn them, but also to encourage them. And so at the same token, there's, there's a second element to prophecy that we don't always think about. We don't see it as a miraculous gift, but it's the foretelling of God's word. Foretelling could be simple, me simply getting up here and reading this chapter. 
and, and explaining the meaning, like I am. There's a prophetic element to each Bible study we're involved in, and God is desiring, maybe not to miraculously whisper in your ear, but to highlight certain verses because of something that you're currently going through. The fourth telling of the Word of God gives this benefit of all who partake in the Word of God. Those who receive it are able to be discipled by it. And that could be as something that you don't even have to be at church for that. Open up the Bible, sit in your chair in the morning or outside or wherever you have quiet time, and God desires to foretell His Word into your life for all the things we talked about. It's inspired by God. And it's working together in your life to benefit you. The proclaiming of God's written word while his spirit empowers the speaker and the hearer to understand and be discipled by each eternal truth. And so Jacob's words in verse 3 through 28 will have these elements. They will bless his sons. He's going to speak a blessing over them. God bless my children. He's going to make a prediction about each son's future. Now these predictions will be based upon what they've sown in their past and the consequences they're currently reaping because of what they sown. Galatians says that uh, don't, don't be uh, unaware. God, God is not mocked. You will reap after the kind you sow. So if you've sowed to the flesh or you've sinned in your past, you're no doubt reaping the consequences of the fruit of your past actions. But he speaks of their future, but he draws from their past to warn them of the things that will come up if they continue in those past practices. But then, I want to point out this. If you don't, personally, right now, like what you're reaping in your life, then you have the opportunity today. Start today and sow something different. If you don't like the kind of fruit you're bearing in your life, Sow something different because you will reap in the future what you're sowing today. And so, many times, Israel's blessings are warnings, and we talked about that. So let's get into, in our time remaining, each son. And we'll kind of breeze through them, but I'll try to point out some major uh, points. So Reuben, verse 3, You are my firstborn, my might in the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, the excellency of power. You've got a lot of potential because you were the firstborn, Reuben. But that's who you are by birth. But here's who you are because of sin. Verse 4. Unstable as water, you shall not excel. I think the word excel should be highlighted there. Because he has all the potential because of his birth. He had the excellency. The base word of excellency is excel excellency, you might say it that way, of dignity and power. But because you are unstable as water, you shall not excel. You will, you're forfeiting the rights as a firstborn. And here's why. Because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it and you went up to my couch. You might not remember this, but in Genesis chapter 35, verse 22, Rachel had passed away and while Jacob was away from his home, uh, Reuben uh, went up to Bilhah, one of the servants of one of Jacob's wives, and he lay with her committing adultery. And not only that, but breaking another commandment because he exposed the nakedness of his father by laying with one of his father's wives. And so because of that, he says, you will not excel. And if you remember in Genesis 35, verse 22, it almost seems like Jacob knows about it, but doesn't do anything about it. Well, here he's saying to Reuben, hey, you're not getting away with that. There's just nothing I could do about it. So now, guess what? I'm not going to bless you as the firstborn. You've, you've given up this right as the firstborn. You've given up who you are, who God made you to be, for one moment of pleasure. And that's how it always goes. When we're tempted by sin and we partake in that forbidden fruit, whatever it might be, you, the Bible teaches that sin is pleasurable, by the way. Sin is pleasurable for a season, for a moment. But guess what? It has wages. <laughs> the wages of sin is death. 
It may not be death eternally, but it might be uh, that something that you hoped for is taken from you. And so here, Reuben experiences this. You shall not excel. Uh, Verse 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. What are those instruments of cruelty? I would submit to you that it's, it's them. They are cruel. It's not about the instruments that they use. It's the instruments that they are. Um, they are cruel. He says, let not my soul enter their counsel. Let not my honor, <laughs> Jacob's saying, let my, not my, my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger, they slew a man. Uh, this man was actually uh, an entire city. Um, and in their self-will, they hamstrung an ox. Now, in some of your translations, it might say that they, they hamstrung an, an ox for sport. To hamstring an ox means to go up behind it and slice its hamstrings so it's no longer useful as a beast of burden. And so they took away the power. And if you remember this story in Genesis chapter 34, verse 26, of the 12 uh, sons of Jacob actually had one sister that we know of, and her name was Dinah. And she's not the one that was in the kitchen. Um, but Dinah is not necessarily the, it, it's a pretty PG-13 story. Uh, Jacob takes his family to a place called Shechem, which is supposed to mean tent city. But while they're there, um, they start to do business with the townspeople. And uh, the son of the namesake of the city, the son of Shechem, actually takes Dinah and lay with her. Uh, they're not married And it seems to be that the text implies that she was actually raped. And after that, uh, when he takes her forcibly, he loves her and wants to marry her. So they kind of got things out of order. This is not what God's best is. And so um, the brothers see that Jacob doesn't do anything, and they're a little furious because that's their sister. And so they go into the town and they go, hey, um, I know you want to marry our sister. And uh, having no intention to let them marry uh, her sister, he says, uh, but you can't do that unless you're circumcised. So the entire town, all the males go, okay, we'll do that for our leader. And they get circumcised. And on the third day when they're in much pain, if you don't know what that means, uh, you know, do a little digging. But they're sore. And so at just the right time, Simeon and Levi go into town with their swords and assumably some other people and they kill all the males and they take all of the spoil of the city and they are two peas in a pod full of self-will and full of wrath Uh, but their anger is what fueled the fire Uh, and in ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 and 27 it actually says be angry angry is being angry is not a sin by the way It's what you do with the energy that comes from that anger. And in their self-will and in their anger, they use their anger to destroy human beings. And they were cruel about it. Uh, But what it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, is to put away all wrath and self-seeking and all of those things. And so uh, they gave up their position because their anger controlled their actions. And if you're somebody who struggles with anger, I'll be the first to admit it. I struggle with anger. Um, You can give up your position uh, because your anger controls your actions. So be very aware that sin is lurking. And if you let that anger, that is, by the way, God-given, control you and do sinful actions, it can cause major problems. But what's cool about looking at the life of uh, Levi, at least, God actually designed him to be wrathful, but not righteous, not unrighteously anger, but angry, but to be righteously angry. Because in Exodus, Exodus chapter 32, verse 26 through 28, Moses is coming off the mountain, receiving the tablets with the Ten Commandments. And as he comes down off the mountain, he sees all of the people are worshiping a golden calf. And as they're worshiping that golden calf, uh, Moses says, Lord, what am I going to do? And the Lord says, I want you to go out and judge those who are worshiping the calf because sin needs to be judged. 
And so he says, anybody that's with me, come to my side. And one of the ones that did was Levi. He joined himself together with Moses and all of his descendants did. And they were willing to righteously go and judge those who are caught in sin. They had already been warned, you shall have no other gods before me. And so there had to be an example made of them. And so Levi was one of the ones that in this time used the sword to do the work of the Lord rather than the work of his self-will. And so um, our biggest strength is usually our biggest weakness. Our biggest strength, what God has designed us to do, can be our biggest weakness. So we need to let that thing be controlled by the Lord. We need to give what he's gifted us to do over to him. And so um, I don't know what your biggest strength is, but recognize it. Ask the Lord what it is and ask him, "Uh, Lord, I want to give you this gift so that you can use it for its proper purposes. But the the warning to them is, because they were self-willed and controlled by anger, he says, cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. Cursed be their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob. I will scatter them in Israel. And if you know anything about these tribes, how this is fulfilled in their future is, this is a map of the nation of Israel when they go in and enter the land after the book of Numbers. And Simeon uh, becomes one of the smallest tribes during the wilderness years in Numbers. And when they enter in and take their inheritance... You see how big the green is on there? That's Judah, the southern tribe. But within there, there's an island that's landlocked called uh, Simeon. So that's their land. They're scattered. They're kind of cut off from all the other uh, nations except for Judah. But then Levi, the way it pans out in his life, is he actually becomes, uh, he doesn't inherit any land, partially because he's part of the Levitical priesthood he's his sons will be part of the levitical priesthood their inheritance will actually be the lord they won't get any land but instead they will be scattered among all the tribes of the nation of israel and they will have cities within each tribe where they will be the representative before god for the people of that place and so it's a blessing but it's also a curse because they don't get an inheritance And yet, in some ways, they get a better blessing because their inheritance is the Lord. It's not a physical blessing. And they get to represent the people of God before God himself and God himself to the people. And so, uh, that said, um, we go on to Judah. Now, if you remember from Judah's past, Judah did not, (laughs) Judah actually followed the, the footsteps of Jacob quite Uh, thoroughly. Uh, Judah was not known for playing uprightness. He was an ungodly man, and there have been many stories that Kelly and I have read as we read through the Bible, and we go, why did we name our son Judah again? (laughs) Some of the most prolific sinful stories in Genesis, I'm like, I don't know. You know, I I don't know why we named him that. I, I think of the lion of the tribe of Judah, not Judah himself, and yet Judah is the one through whom Jesus will come. And so Judas passed, we all know about. He tried to defraud his his daughter-in-law, Tamar. If you remember, uh, she married the firstborn of Judah, and he died. And then she married the secondborn, and then he died. And then Judah's like, hmm, I don't think I want you to marry my one and only son that I have left. And so he kind of plays the passive-aggressive, like, oh, well, when he gets older... Well, then he gets older, and guess what? He withholds his third son from her, and then she doesn't have somebody to marry. And in those days, it wasn't so much just about she was lonely. She had no one to provide for her. And so he defrauded his daughter-in-law. He didn't play nice with her. He was actually kind of a curse to her. But then also, he's the one that had this bright idea to sell Joseph, his brother, into slavery. So... um Judas past is not praiseworthy. It's it's an abomination in some ways. But Judas presence we find through the story of Joseph that he actually is a changed man. And though he did sell his brother into slavery, now that they've come to the land of Egypt, 
for bread in the story, um, it says that when he's tested and they're going to keep Benjamin and not let him go back to his father, but keep him as a slave, Judah says, hey, don't put Benjamin into slavery. It's going to cause my dad to even be more sorrowful and maybe even kill him. His, his life is tied up in this young son of his. It's the only son left from his favorite wife, Rachel. Why don't you let me become a slave and Benjamin can go back? And so now he's agape loving. He's sacrificing for the benefit of others at the cost to himself. And so he's a changed man. And so I believe that in many ways, this is why he gets such a blessing from Jacob. And so in verse 8 it says, Judah, you are whom you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. You'll be triumphant. Um, your father's children shall bow down before you. And I believe this is this is a prophetic statement because who got this kind of prophetic dream before where your brothers will bow down to you? It was Joseph. So just as Joseph had his brothers bow down to him in the future through their salvation, they bow down to him in submission. So also the descendants of Judah will have all the descendants of his brothers bowing down to them because through him will come not only kings of the nation, but also the king of kings for all nations. So your brothers shall bow down before you just like your brothers bowed down to Joseph and from you is where kings will proceed from. Notice that the blessing that would go to Reuben, Reuben the firstborn in that culture would be in charge of the family finances. He would be the the family head practically and financially, but also he would be the spiritual leader of the family. So the spiritual leadership now goes to Levi and the kingdom or the, the throne of the king that would administrate over the family, the head of the family, the king, would now be Judah instead. So all these blessings that would have been to the firstborn are now scattered throughout the tribes in a different way. And then notice there, as it continues, it says, Judah is a lion's whelp. When he's done eating his prey, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who's going to rouse him? I don't know about you guys, but when I go to the zoo, my thought has never been, I wonder if I could go into his cage. And when he's napping, start poking him. Say, hey, wake up, Uh, my kids want to hear you. Uh, My kids would see me getting eaten. Or at the very least, chased and then bitten. And so as a lion, who shall rouse him? He's got power and might, but he's going, to be, uh, he's going to defeat his enemies. And when he's done taking care of his praise, uh, the lion will rest. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. If you remember the story of Ruth, as Ruth is going to, not Ruth, Esther. Esther wants to approach the king And anybody that approaches the king, if he does not extend his scepter to that person, they would be killed. That's a sign of his power. And so the scepter in the hand of the king would always be there in Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, the leadership, the authority, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And many believe that this meant when they set up the tabernacle in Shiloh, which the word Shiloh means sent, But the word there, Shiloh, actually stands for the one to whom the kingdom truly belongs, or the one to whom authority in the throne actually belongs. And so to him shall be the obedience of the people, or the word transliterated is nations. So not only would Judah's descendants be the ruler or the king, the authority over the nation of Israel, but it says there prophetically, that he would be the king over nations. And the nations there would be all nations. And there will come a time where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All nations will bow down. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. 
His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. And so in this we see, uh, it makes me think of the story of the triumphal entry where he, he sits on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and he travels into the land, into Jerusalem. He washes his garments in wine. And much of this looks to the future of Jesus himself who would tread out the wine press and deal out wrath and crush his enemies. His enemies would become his footstool. And if he actually uses the word there, his clothes will be covered in the blood of grapes. I think that's on purpose because when grapes are crushed, the blood of the grapes is wine. And so that's a picture of joy. But it's also a picture of his own blood that was poured out on the cross for you and I. And if you remember when he was beaten and they put his garment on him and dressed him up and mocked him as a king, he was bleeding profusely because of the scourging he took. And so there in the first coming, his garments are covered in the blood of himself. And yet when he comes the second time riding on a horse triumphantly entering into Jerusalem setting up his kingdom it says there that the blood of his enemies will be up to the bridle of the horse and this one covered in the blood of his enemies it will be on his garments like a warrior who's just come from battle he'll be covered in the blood of his enemies and so it's a very a vivid word picture you can dig into more of that on your own. Then Zebulun, his main name means dwelling. He will dwell by the sea, the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his borders shall adjourn Sidon. And this is just foretelling where he would be located. And there you see Zebulun is in uh, kind of a pink color uh, to the left of the Sea of Galilee, between Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. So that's where his inheritance will be. But then Issachar, verse 14, is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. Now, if you know anything about beasts of burden, it doesn't make any difference if he's a strong donkey or a big donkey if he's laying down. Strength does no good when he's resting. And so he's laying down between these two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear a burden, and he became a band of slaves. So I found a quote from a man by the name of Leupold, not loophole, but Leupold. He says, the meaning seems to be that Issachar was strong, but docile and lazy. And so strength does no good to you if you're lazy, does it? He would enjoy the good land assigned him, but would not strive for it. Therefore, eventually, he would be pressed into servitude and the mere bearing of burdens for those who owned him, his masters. So, Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 10 through 11 says this. As I get there, very quickly, he says, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And so shall your poverty come on you like a prowler, and your need shall come upon you like an armed man. Those who will not put their hand to, to the plow, those who will not strive to obtain that which they need, will eventually find themselves in poverty. And so it's a warning to him, don't be lazy. You are strong, but work hard. Verse uh, 16, Dan shall judge his people. His name means judge as one of the tribes of Israel. If you know anything about the Old Testament, before they have kings, the book of Judges is the history of the, the leaders that came to deliver Israel from their enemies before they had a king. And so some of the famous ones are Gideon and then uh, 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 Samson. But he, he says in verse 17, Dan shall be a serpent by the way. Uh, serpents are a picture of wisdom. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, Be wise as serpents, but be harmless as doves. But a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels, uh, so that its rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. And so in there we see Dan as a judge, and yet as, as a serpent. And so many believe that the serpent that we see in Genesis, well, uh, 
early on in Genesis, the serpent that deceived uh, Eve will actually be a serpent that comes from the tribe of Dan. He'll actually be the Antichrist. I I don't know. Uh, But many believe that. And so in the meantime, it says that Though Dan is a deliverer, he's a judge, and he keeps coming back and delivering the people of God. And yet, um, what we see is that from them would come strong leaders, but those leaders would only be strong if they trusted in the Lord God instead of themselves. Interestingly enough, he says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. And the word salvation there in verse 18 is actually just Yeshua. Jesus, where we would get our, our common day language, it would be Joshua or Yeshua. Jesus, which means the Lord, he is my salvation. So we see Jesus even in the life of uh, Dan there. And then Gad, he says, A troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. And then Asher, bread from Asher, shall be rich. He shall yield royal dainties. Maybe he was a baker, uh, someone who makes uh, things that people delight in. He is the tribe through, through whom the bakers and the cooks will come in Israel. And Gad will be the one who soldiers come from. But notice there it says they'll be attacked, but will ultimately prevail upon their enemies. Uh, now in First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14, we see that um, Gad provided many troops for King David. Uh, And then in Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 1, we see that though the troops of Gad were oppressed by foreign armies, they ultimately triumphed. Um, But also Asher, his name means happy. And I don't know about you guys, if I go to the bakery and I get some fresh baked goods, they make me happy. (laughs) Sometimes not so much afterwards when I, you know, work on my muffin top. Um, But they'll make food that kings delight in. That's That's their lot, if you will. Uh, Verse 21, Naphtali means wrestling. Uh, But notice here, I want to point out something. Naphtali is a deer let loose. And I don't know about you guys, but when I watch a deer run or jump, it's so elegant in the way that it does. And he uses beautiful words. Now, you could easily go over this, but uh, he uses beautiful words. Uh, Where is the most beautiful words ever been spoken other than where Jesus shared the gospel, the good news of God's peace offered to us through his own life. And if you look at where Naphtali is, in the land, up in the north, you see um, this green region, you may not be able to read it, just to the north and the west of the Sea of Galilee, that's where Jesus spent most of his time preaching. And so what's interesting about that is that we have the words spoken about for Naphtali, the beautiful words, but we also have the elegance of the deer. How many of us would love to have the elegance and the sure-footedness of a deer when we're walking through the woods, and yet we see in Jesus what Isaiah chapter 52 verse 7 says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace who brings glad tidings or good news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And so we see Jesus, even in Naphtali, who has these beautiful words and these beautiful feet. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 through 16, it speaks again about this this proclamation that would happen in Naphtali and also in the land of Zebulun. And so verse 22 through 26, we see Joseph, whose name means increase. We spent a lot of time on Joseph already, but Joseph is a fruitful bough. Now, some of you might think, what the heck is a bough? If you've ever heard the the nursery rhyme, that kind of creeps me out. When the bough breaks, the cradle will fall. Who's putting their kids in trees? I, I don't feel like... We should do that. But Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. So there's a source of water where this bough grows, this branch. His branches run over the wall. So he has fruitful branches. He has increase from his life. But not only does he benefit from this fruit, but it says it goes over the wall. 
So outside of his influence, outside of his inheritance, people also outside of the wall will partake of that same fruit. And many of us, if we have a fruit tree, we might say, hey, my neighbor doesn't get to eat from that thing. But they benefit from the juice and from the fruit. It's tasty. And so those who are outside of Israel will benefit from the increase of Joseph. And we've already seen that in his life as he was the one who stored up grain. And all the nations of the world around Egypt have benefited from the fruit of Joseph's ministry. And yet, verse 23, it says, The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. And so arrows have flown. Uh, They've been sent, and they've grieved Joseph's life. And we know this. We've read Joseph's life, but for the sake of kind of making some bullet points here, arrows from his brothers grieved his life. And arrows from others. And just a quick recap. Doubt and scorn. Chapter 37, verse 8. They scorned at his dreams that God gave him. Uh, They hated him. Chapter 37, verse 4. There was treachery against him. Chapter 37, verse 18. When they plotted against him. And then temptation from um, the wife of his boss. Who wanted to lay with him. She tempted him. Chapter 39, verse 7. And then when he would not succumb to her temptation, he was falsely accused. Chapter 39, verse 13 through 18. And then, if that wasn't enough, the, the man who he gave, he interpreted the dream of the, the, the cupbearer for the king who would have his ear and be able to get him out of prison, he, was, uh, he had arrows of forgetfulness flung at him. Uh, the man didn't remember him for two whole years. But notice, it says here, Joseph didn't fire arrows back. But God steadied him in all of these arrows. Verse 24, his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. The God of Jacob was with Joseph everywhere he went. And from there is the shepherd. We see the shepherd, Jesus, the stone of Israel, the chief cornerstone. And then he goes on to say, By the God of your Father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, there will be increase. The blessings of your Father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. So Joseph experienced blessing, but he also had to go through much sorrow and doubt and fear and worry and the fiery darts of the enemy. So the word to Joseph and to us from Joseph would be, be ready for the fiery darts. Put on the full armor of God. They're coming for us as believers Peter even writes, don't, be, don't consider it a strange thing when fiery trials come your way. But God's producing such, something that's so much more better than a comfortable life. Because there's a crown that's promised to those who endure through trials to the end. There will be a crown for those who suffer and endure through trusting the Lord, a crown of life. And it's spoken of to the church there in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. And I'm going to turn there real quick. Because I think sometimes we see trials, we see the fiery darts that the enemy or even friends throw at us. And yet, the writer there says in Revelation 2.10, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So even if you're in prison for your faith, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. And when we studied Revelation, I pointed out that those 10 days, though they can seem like forever, they are a distinct amount of time that have an end to them. But he says, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. There's a special crown for those who endure suffering 
and follow through. And then Benjamin. And I promise we're closing up quick here. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. Doesn't seem like the best prophecy over your life to be called a ravenous wolf. Uh, But ravenous wolf devours and divides the spoil. If Israel are the sheep of God's pasture, to be named a wolf is no compliment. And in Judges chapter 20, we see Benjamin actually becomes at odds with his own brothers and uh, slews, destroys many of them when they're battling against one another. And if you know anything about uh, Benjamin and the descendants of Benjamin, the first king that came from uh, the nation of Israel was actually a Benjamite. It was King Saul. And if you read this thinking about Saul, you find that Benjamin is a ravenous wolf In the morning or early on, he shall devour the prey. He'll destroy his enemies as the Lord tells him, but at night he shall divide the spoil. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, this is where Saul is tested and he's he's told, I want you to go defeat my enemies, Saul, from the Lord, and then don't take any of the spoil, but utterly wipe out this nation. And instead... It says that Saul goes on in, he defeats the people, he takes the king captive, doesn't kill him, he takes all the spoil, and so when Samuel finally shows up, he hears the bleeding of sheep. And he says, wait a minute, I told you to slay all of their stuff, burn it, get rid of it so we're not tempted by it. He was obedient, but not wholly obedient, and so the, the Lord says, You're, I'm going to take the kingdom from you, Saul. And instead, he provides a king through the nation of Judah, which is interesting. I was reading in Psalm 68, verse 27 this week in my daily reading, and that came up. Benjamin, the youngest, it says there, will lead first, and then the rest of the kings will come from Judah. And so there's a a warning there for Benjamin. And yet in all of this, verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel, And this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. I don't know if you guys noticed this, but I pick up on these things when there's repetition. Uh, Sometimes it's a blessing and sometimes it's not. But here he says, and he blessed them. He blessed each one. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. So all of this is about blessing. It's words for instruction. It's words for correction. It's words for warning. He blessed them, each one uniquely. Parents, bless your children. Your words over their lives, when we bless our children, we're speaking over them, this is who you are. This is who you have purpose for. This is your purpose. This is why God made you. Speak over them their identity. You might get it wrong, but that's okay. Speak into their lives blessing and purpose. This is what God made us for. And then speak over their lives warning. They need your voice to echo in their minds with good things, instructions. These things will help to guide their future. Jacob is departing. He's leaving this life, but his words will remain with them forever. He charged them where they should bury him. Verse 29 through 32. He finished his final words. He put his feet up. My work's done. He kicks up the recliner. He breathes his last and he joins his ancestors in death. He charged them and said to them, I'm to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. And there they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. And there they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. Bury me there. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Um, So, all this to say, it's really all about Jacob speaking words. And these are words from the Lord for the future of of the people of Israel. But these words also, I don't know if you realize it or not, they affect us. 
because they echo in those who have gone before us. And so these are Jacob's final words. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, the words that uh, spoke into the lives of Jacob and his dis- his, his disciples. <laughs> they're his children, but they're those that he was having an impact on. He discipled them. And so, Lord, if you're speaking words to us today of correction, of warning, of reproach, of uh, you know, trying to turn us around and get us to repent of dead works and walk forward in new works, I pray, give us the, the faith not only to hear those words, but to act upon them. Uh, the discouraging part of this passage is that many of the sons of Jacob did not heed the words, and they, instead of repenting and moving forward in faith, um, these things came to pass that were uh, negative things for the nation. And so, Lord Jesus, please give us the, the faith to hear your words, to act on those words, and to speak those words over our children, over the next generation of those who will be faithful. Thank you for your word to us. Thank you for this people. Lord, thank you that you are still speaking today, that we don't need Jacob, even if we don't have a godly influence, that you are speaking to each one of us and that you are our father and you will always be there. And may your words be those that echo in our minds as we go out through this next week. In Jesus' name, amen.